0: We are continuing a series on John's Gospel. We have been working our way through this for several months now, having a blast. So we are in John 17, so do please keep your Bibles open at that passage. It is, uh, it is now late at night before Jesus is crucified the very next morning. Jesus has actually finished the Last Supper with his disciples. And, and then he, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays. And astonishingly, in John chapter 17, we are listening in on Jesus' prayer to the Father. We began uh, looking at the first five verses of this prayer last week. Tom Takura told us that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 45, I think, sermons on this passage. We've only got one to finish it, so uh, strap yourselves in. We're continuing to look at what Jesus prayed, of course, but with a special emphasis tonight on what I'm going to call the trajectory of Jesus' prayer. This prayer takes us somewhere. Uh, Jesus prays with a purpose. He loves for us. He, he, he yearns for us. He desperately wants us to go in a certain direction with a certain trajectory. Um, let me explain a trajectory. Um, every father who has ever encountered the Year 5 rocket challenge... Uh, You know, that's the school project. You know, your kid brings home where you must design and build a rocket within certain parameters. Um, Every father knows a lot about rockets by the time your child is in year five. I happened to uh, go into the vault and dig out a video of my uh, well, year twelve boy when he was in year five, and we were working on the year five rocket project. So, trust me when I say I know a lot about rockets. Rockets are all about the launch, and then the trajectory, and then the landing. Very important to land the thing. And all of those three are obviously linked, right? The, the, the blast off power is converted into movement along a pathway, the trajectory, so the rocket goes someplace and lands somewhere. And John 17, this prayer that we're reading, is the launching power which sets the disciples off on a trajectory. They are meant to blast off, to go somewhere, to to land somewhere, in fact. And of of all of the things that we could look at in this passage in John 17, and there are many, we're going to be looking at three things, the, the launching power, its trajectory, and where it's all going. So here's the key. The launch is what is revealed. In fact, we have seen that God is revealed, uh, not only in John 17 but throughout John's Gospel. And this unveiling actually propels Jesus' followers on an incredible journey with a trajectory, with a mission. And while on this mission, we are secure, we are protected. And then, of course, there's the most important landing place, Jesus intends his disciples to go somewhere to actually be something, and he describes the landing as some kind of unity. So three things, revealed, protected, united. You know where we're going. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, where it's uh, John 17, and uh, I'm at verse 6. And Jesus continues his prayer. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they've obeyed your words. So Jesus launches his disciples, he gets them off the ground by revealing the Father. It all begins at that moment. You see, uh, in our human arrogance, we suppose that somehow or other we can figure out and discover the God of the universe. Uh, Perhaps through our introspection or our meditation or our philosophy, but God is not hiding within us to be discovered there. Nor will we discover God out there through a telescope or a microscope or a particle accelerator. Human efforts to find God are at best a guess, speculation. But when God took the initiative, that changed everything. Jesus prays, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me. This is the launching pad power here. God has reached out and he's made himself known to us. Now we actually have an assurance and a confidence because we know God. We can't take any credit for it, but we know God truly and as a result, we ultimately we know what really matters in life. We know why we exist. We know where we're going. And so as this gospel of John now builds to its climax, we have seen God unveiled in Jesus' teaching. We have learned that he is the God of love, cares for his people. He is the God who is worshipped in spirit and truth, not on a mountaintop, not in a temple. Not only that, though, we have seen God's salvation unveiled in Jesus' signs. you remember there's seven great signs in John's gospel? God is doing something new. There is A new Moses, a new Exodus, a new temple, a new life that is with God forever. But we've seen one further thing. We have seen Jesus unveiled as God in human form. Jesus forgives sin. He exercises all of God's authority. He raises the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you remember climactically at the very beginning of this Last Supper uh, discourse, Jesus says to Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus has unveiled God in a way that cannot fail to change everything about our lives. Our lives are transformed because we know God like never before. these high-sounding ideas can kind of wash over us a little bit and we say, yeah, okay, I think I've got that. What I want to suggest to you now is that we want to take all this great knowledge that we have and move it to our hearts. Here's a suggestion of going deeper. Everything that you have seen about the Lord Jesus and God the Father unveiled in the Gospels Can you turn that into praise? Can I suggest that you actually set aside some time this week to pray through all of these details? We've been shown God's plan and purpose for salvation. We've seen his holiness, his love, his heart for the broken. John's gospel has revealed incredible things. And I think that one of the healthiest things that we can do with all of this knowledge is turn it back to God. In praise. It keeps us humble. And it gives him glory. So, uh, you know, sit down in a comfy chair with your Bible. Flick back through the pages of John's Gospel. And look at all of those things that you've seen about God. And make them into prayers. Uh, one of my favourite uh, professors when I was at Bible college was a guy called Jim Packer. And this is his favourite expression. He would say it every lecture. I won't do it with an English accent. Theology... Is for doxology. Theology is the study of God. All the great things that you know about God has a have a purpose. It's not to make us smart, but it's actually to be turned to God in praise. Doxology is praise. So all of the great things that we know about God should be the fuel for bringing glory to God. Um. Some people have said to me, how does that actually work? Because it sounds kind of strange. What's going on? Let me, let me just share with you what I did this week. Okay? Just, here's what I did uh, to turn theology into doxology. Uh, I began with this passage. I was reading it, so I sit down with John chapter 17 in front of me. Um, I, I like to print it out sometimes on a piece of paper so I can doodle and scribble and make notes on it as I go. And I read through the passage and I read through it again and I started to make some observations And I started to think and ponder on those observations. And I asked myself the question, what do I notice about God? It's not about me. What do I notice about God? And so um, I started to read John chapter 17 and, you know, my first observation was uh, God the Father gives glory to Jesus. And then I saw the very next thing, Jesus (laughs) gives glory To God the Father. And then I noticed everything Jesus now owns was given to him by the Father. And everything Jesus has, he gives to the Father. There's this incredible mutuality, this dynamic giving all the time. And in fact, as I reflected a little more widely on the scriptures, I, I skimmed back over John 16, right? It turns out every member of the Trinity is constantly all about the others, giving them perfect love, glory and honour and and everything else. In God there is this wonderful dynamic of relationship and care and, and mutuality. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit love one another perfectly, generating a complete unity. And God's perfect love sustains the three persons, without kind of blending them one into the other or mixing them up or limiting their personhood in any way, I start to marvel. God, in your person, you are beautiful and you are magnificent. So the key... To, and then I launched off into prayer, right? The key to praise is to fill your horizon with God, just with God. Don't put yourself in there at all. Make it all about him. Very quickly we realise that the only possible response to knowing God, as it says in John 17, 3, is worship. His being, who God is in himself, is so high above us, so far beyond our telling, beyond our ability to comprehend, and yet Jesus has unveiled him. He's made him known. He's revealed him. We can know God truly. We may not know him comprehensively, but we'll know him truly because of what has been revealed to us. What a privilege. Let's worship him. So Jesus unveils the Father, and it's incredible. It's the launching pad. It's the launch power that sets us off. It sets us off rocket-like on an amazing journey along a trajectory, but which way? What's the journey going to be like? Is it going to turn out okay? That's usually my question at the beginning of a journey. Will I be safe? Jesus goes on to pray. I'm looking now at verses 11 through 18 as we think about this trajectory, this journey. I'm at verse 11. Jesus prays to the Father, I will remain in the world no longer. But they, my disciples, are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. I'm skipping down a little. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world. So what's the trajectory that we are launched upon? We are not launched off into heaven with Jesus. Quite the opposite. We are launched into the world without Jesus on his behalf. As God sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus sends his disciples to continue his mission. That phrase, in the world or of the world, seems to be important here. In fact, I counted eight times that phrase appears just in these verses. Jesus is very emphatic about where his disciples need to be, not hidden away someplace in splendid isolation, but actually out in the world. In amongst unbelievers and antagonists and the haters. Why? Because Jesus still wants them. He is still calling them. He wants to show them the truth. And on this mission trajectory into the world, Jesus prays for his disciples that they will be protected. That seems to be the key here. Why? Presumably, they're going to need it. Okay? We've, we've already seen in John's Gospel, haven't we, that the world is kind of a loaded term for Jesus. Uh, by it, he means people in opposition to God. He means people who hate Christians. That's what he says in John 15 and 16. So Jesus prays for his disciples' protection, but it's an interesting kind of protection that they're given, right? Uh, they are not given swords and shields and tanks and guns. Instead, they are protected by the power of God's name. Do you see that in verses 11 and 12? Someone asked me to explain this a little bit better this morning, so I'm going to go there. Have you guys seen the movie um, Toy Story? Uh, You know, it's like a a, a puppet, Woody, um, you know, and his mates, and and they they belong to Andy. And uh, Andy is a boy who grows up and, you know, kind of gets sick of his toys. But there's this great moment where, um, you know, the, the puppet Woody kind of falls over and he's left and abandoned, and you see on the underside of his foot... Inscribed there is Andy. The owner's name is written on the soul of this puppet. It's a great little story. God's name is written on our souls for our protection. God's name, which represents all that he is, his glory, his power, his authority, is written on our souls For our protection in this world. If you mess with something that belongs to God, you're messing with God. When God's people are abused and attacked in this world, if they take their stand for him, it is God himself who is being attacked. When his reputation is on the line, God protects Those who bear his name. Now, that doesn't mean that no harm ever comes to God's people in this world, but it does mean that God is in control, that there are limits according to God's purposes as to what will happen. It means that ultimately justice will be done. When you suffer because of Jesus, when you experience persecution of whatever kind it may be, remember that you bear God's name, you are protected. By the name of God, he is our protection. So propelled by this incredible unveiling of God for a mission that, while risky, is protected, there is a destination. This all goes somewhere. God has a great plan for our future. And this future is so great, we can hardly grasp it. It makes the journey worthwhile. We notice as we get to verse 20 that Jesus' prayer has shifted on from the the disciples in the room that night to include all who will believe in their message. I don't know if Jesus can see down through the time tunnel to St. Andrew's Roseville, but we are most certainly being prayed for here by the Lord Jesus himself. I'm at verse 20. You might like to follow along. Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Back at the beginning of this uh, series on John's Gospel, do do you remember John Dixon saying, I'm kind of a bit reluctant? I've never actually preached through John's Gospel before, and I'm almost a bit fearful about it. I want to say I identify with John completely, particularly at this moment. Um, I feel a sense of dread and inadequacy to properly explain everything that I think is going on here, particularly in these few verses. Jesus is obviously praying that we will be united, okay? Verse 20, he says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that is the, the disciples, that all of them may be one. But here's the thing. Jesus is not merely praying that we will be one with each other, like a great big happy family, although he is praying for that. But Jesus is also praying that we will be one with God, with the Father, and with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. He wants us to participate as sharers in the very same unity that belongs to the Trinity. Let's look a little closer at the text so you can see what I mean. Verse 21, Jesus prays for us that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So far, the unity that Jesus is praying for us could be kind of analogous to the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus could be saying, I pray that they have the same kind of unity, a similar sort of a unity that we have. But look at what happens next. He prays, May they also be in us. In other words, may they share what we share, that same unity. And then verse 22, to reinforce this, Jesus says that he has shared his God-given glory with us so that we may be one. Clarifying what he means now, verse 23, and he says, I in them and you in me. If you're following me still, you're kind of hoping for a rocket picture or something, right? Because this is too hard. Our heads kind of explode with the complexity of it. But I want to encourage you to hang in there. Let's see if we can follow this logic through. Jesus is praying that we would be one, not only with each other, but also with him. If we are one with Jesus, Jesus is in us, he says, or he prays. And then we are one with God the Father, As well, because the Father is in Jesus as he prays. We are to be made one with God. Not merely like him, but sharers with God, in God. I'm not saying that we're going to become divine or that we somehow become little mini-gods. I'm saying only what the Apostle Peter says in one of his epistles. He writes, Jesus has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What I'm saying is that Jesus prays for our unity with God, that we'll actually share in his life, that we will participate in the very life of God. That's eternal life. You know, back in John 17, 3, we read last week, eternal life is knowing God. That's the complete unity That Jesus prays that we will be brought into, we participate in the divine life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And to be honest with you, that kind of blows my mind. Jesus has unveiled the Father. He's shown us something of his own intimacy with the Father. And now he prays that we will join in. Father. Bring them to complete unity with us. So verse 24, he prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. He continues in verse 26, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. God's love is in us. Jesus is in us. And we know from the earlier readings in John 15 and 16 from the Lord's Supper, we know that all of that is worked out by the Holy Spirit. He's the one doing this. If you are a Christian right now, God's love is in you. God's love is for you. And the Spirit of God, God himself, is in you joining you, uniting you with God himself. And according to John, it actually gets better from there. In John's epistle, he writes this, Dear friends, we are now children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Paul writes something similar to the Romans. He says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. An heir is an inheritor, right? Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I cannot tell you what it will mean to share in the inheritance of God to be an heir with the Lord Jesus and to share his glory. I, I cannot tell you that. But what I do know is that Jesus himself prayed for you and for me that we will share his glory, that we will be one with him and so one with God in his divine life, with each other, all of us, the entire church. And according to Jesus' prayer, the power of that unity is going to change the world. The way that we live our unity will convince the world of the truth of Jesus, that he was indeed sent by the Father. So at very least, unity should mark the life of St Andrew's Roseville. No gossip, no slander, no prejudice. We dare not speak about another who is joined to Jesus. That going to speak to them first. What about when unity is challenged by our differences? We all have different preferences and different priorities, maybe even different understandings of the Bible. Sometimes we can sacrifice our preferences for the sake of others, but sometimes we can't. We might need to actually talk directly to another person about this to work things out graciously. Reconciliation is a deeply Christian thing to do. We've we've had a week, haven't we, where we've been thinking about reconciliation with our indigenous peoples. Reconciliation is a deeply Christian thing to do. It means that we agree to work through the problem, whatever it is. We're going to figure out a solution and we're committed to that process to the very end. When we have offended the other person, we apologise. We ask for forgiveness, and when we've been hurt, we give forgiveness to the person who has offended us. Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, I know it's complicated. This isn't a simplistic thing. I know it even doesn't always work out. But we go there anyway because of the trajectory that Jesus' prayer takes us to a landing place that absolutely demands our unity. In fact, if we've been made one with Christ, every single one of us, we dare not figure it out. Now, no matter how awkward, no matter how painful, we want to demonstrate the unity of God among ourselves and to the watching world. But unity with Jesus is actually better than that. I mean, that's the dirty side, if you like. But the positive side is we can delight in God's work among us. We can see the work of God in a person and rejoice. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And we also get the privilege of hurting together. We grieve with those who are grieving. Gathering like we do as Christians expresses our unity. And we dare not deprive one another of our love by not showing up. I feel deeply loved whenever I see you because you turned up. That's Christian love expressing itself in unity. And because we are one with the Lord Jesus, we share his inheritance. We live now as he lives. So Jesus' prayer in John 17 shows us the landing place, shows us many, many things. But I think we want to think about this landing place of being sharers in the triune life of God. We are profoundly connected in that trajectory. We're profoundly connected to the trajectory now. That's the landing place. How do we get there? Well, it's all about the trajectory now, isn't it? We have been saved from judgment and saved to eternal life with God in fellowship with him. And in my view, that reality changes everything about the journey, about the mission. It changes our life together as a church. It changes our relationships. It changes our priorities. It changes the way we live. And it does so because we are not our own. We belong to God. His name is written on our souls. And this incredible transformation happens Because God has been revealed to us. The living God has made himself known so that we don't have to guess. So that with great assurance, we know who God is because we see him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Our great God, we are so grateful to you. Thank you for making yourself known to us clearly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit's work, we get it. By faith we can grasp it and we truly do know you. Thank you that knowing you launches us on an incredible mission, not an easy mission, but we thank you that we are protected by your name while we testify to the Lord Jesus, and we ask that you would grow us in unity, we long for that landing place where we absolutely enjoy our unity with you and with one another. Please give us such courage and such humility that we would embrace that humility, uh, embrace that um, unity now and live it now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.